I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week on Commerce Code, I am talking with Sam Panzer from Talon One, which is based in Berlin, Germany. Sam is the Director of Industry Strategy at Talon One, helping brands assess the business potential of refining their promotions and their loyalty approach. Sam helps brands like Adidas, REI, River Island, Live Nation, and Burger King to optimize promotional spend and create experiences that drive repeat purchases. I'm talking with Sam today about a few things. First, what the retail and payment spaces look like in Germany and how that's different from other markets like the UK or the US and what that means for loyalty programs. We get into some of the challenges of different data rules and places where there are opportunities to build out better rewards and offers by being smarter about how to use data. And we also get into some important issues like rental swans and that epistemology podcast that I've got in the works. So stay tuned for loyalty and reward strategies in Germany in the USA with Sam Panzer from Talon One. This episode of Commerce Code is brought to you by Augio, a global leader in engagement platform technologies that create compelling experiences, foster people connections, and cultivate brand advocates worldwide. With more than 45 years of experience, Augio empowers Fortune 500 companies to deliver extraordinary brand experiences for employees, consumers, channel partners, subscribers, and members. Fueled by a holistic engagement ecosystem across workplace engagement, experiential, social activation, customer loyalty, and digital asset experiences, Augio's mission is inspiring people to achieve more, one interaction, transaction, and experience at a time. Augio. Engagement Unleashed. Sam, welcome to Commerce Code. It is great to have you on the show. Uh, where are you joining us from? Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. I'm in Berlin, Germany. So my accent might betray me, but I'm an American. I've been over here for, for five years here in Berlin. So my wife is also American, but we just thought it'd be fun to, to live in Europe. So doing a lot of work between Europe and the U.S., but currently in the capital of Europe's largest economy. Excellent. Was this a, a vacation that just got real serious or, or or did you actually intend to stay there for five years? Yeah, yeah, something like that. We, we, we really thought that we would come here for two or three. We moved here in spring of 2019, so we kind of got a full lap around the sun before COVID hit and then that kind of suspended things. So and we came out on the other side of it. We just felt, you know, it's actually a pretty livable place to be here in Berlin. It's a, it's a crazy ugly city, but if, if it is certainly not boring. So we've, we found it a super interesting and stimulating place to be really like the rhythm of life over here. So my, my wife's more of the travel book. I'm just some guy from Wisconsin. So don't really have anything, you know, interesting or global about me, but just really found it an inter- interesting and, and fun place to be. So we think we'll, we'll stick around in Europe for, for the long haul. Berlin is a, uh, yeah, it's a crazy town. We're, we're not techno people uh, for sure. And it's kind of a, a bit of a, you know, edgy club city. And I'm about mm-hmm. as collared shirt and uh, tech job as, as it gets. 
You could pour the glass half full and say that you're the edgiest guy in Wisconsin. That's also an option. That's terrific. And one of the things that I wanted to, to start off with was just, you know, I know you and I have kind of corresponded a little bit offline and about what's interesting about the German market. What's interesting about, you know, the way that lo loyalty and payments and all that stuff worked. And, you know, as, as we kind of mentioned up top, Talon One is a really interesting company, I think. Obviously, that's why you're on Commerce Code. And so I'd love to just start with kind of your, your observations about kind of how payments and loyalty and rewards and all that work in Germany and just kind of give us some highlights on, on you know, maybe compare that to your perspective on how things might be in other places, the UK, USA. And I, I'm going to give a side plug to listeners that Sam's uh, LinkedIn posts are among the most interesting. I can think of one or two others that are in the same league. So he's, he's top shelf. You should go find him on LinkedIn. Uh, and that's why I know, for example, that he's got some opinions on these things. Sam, fire away. You know, first of all, my professional work is split pretty evenly between the U.S. and Europe, so I'm able to to speak with you know retailers often back to back of how they're operating in, in different markets, um, and then otherwise just love being a consumer here because it really is a different a different landscape, and most of the difference is you know a bit clunky or, or kind of the things things run a bit more old school here compared to the U.S. mainly because of data data privacy. But just to, to list off a couple of things that you really feel are different here. I mean, first, always shocking to me is how cash is still king here. As a technology conference last week and some of the vendors on the conference floor only took cash at a technology conference. Um, so, so that has a big bearing on, on how transactions work and, and you know, what's kind of trackable or recorded from the business. Credit cards are barely touched as well. Everything's you know, a debit or a bank card from your bank when you do have the opportunity to use card. So obviously, you know, if you think about how much of the loyalty landscape is really propped up to some degree by credit card transaction fees, that, that doesn't happen here, right? So loyalty programs as a result of the payment landscape tend to be more focused on transactional value and less so on, you know, okay, we're, we're making money on this transaction in other ways or somebody is, so how can we pass more of that value back to the, to the user, right? And that's especially true in Germany. If you go to like, you know, even Poland or, or Ukraine or, or economies that developed more recently, they're so much more sophisticated with with payment than than Germany. Germany, it's you know largely just kind of a data privacy concern that keeps people using cash. But the debit card thing is is presumably more cultural. I mean, you see that in Canada to an extent, but not not to the extent that you've just described. If if Americans all stopped using credit cards tomorrow, the economy would collapse. Like yeah. we would it would we would fall into a black hole. I don't know what would happen next. So it's a it's yeah. a cultural difference, right? In terms of I'm assuming, I'm, I guess I'm asking, like it's it's a cultural difference in terms of attitudes towards debt or what? Yeah, absolutely. There there's there's some mechanical stuff too of like, you know, what merchants are able to do in terms of fees here. But ultimately, like when I explain, you know, all the value I got from my credit card back in the US to friends here in Europe, it, it's just something that doesn't make any sense. Just the the core idea of paying for something with money that you don't necessarily have is is abhorrent to Germans, especially who are kind of, you know, more focused on economic responsibility. I think there's also a lot of kind of, if you go back to like the austerity measures that Germany, you know, emphasized during the Euro crisis, uh, you know, 2009 or whatever that is, there's definitely some kind of cultural distrust of institutions here on the financial side. And just this idea, you know, people even pay for cars like straight out of their bank account, which is to, to an American, that's just kind of a, a wild, wild concept, right? So the idea of paying for something in increments, I mean, the buy now, pay later has done okay here in Europe. And, you know, like a couple of them are, are Scandinavian companies, but overall, just the idea that you would pay for something not with cash out of your bank account or out of your wallet 
isn't isn't really as as uh, accepted in the consumer culture. As a consumer, I miss it so much because you just get you can kind of rest sure that whatever credit card you're using, you're going to get one percent of your value back. Like that's just that's an amazing deal, and they give that value back to you in different ways. You know, depending on what you want out of the card or what card you choose. But that's something I really miss is the idea that you have the opportunity to get that much value back from every transaction. And now I just, you know, I just pay cash at pretty much every till like some schmuck. It's fascinating because, and we won't get into this right here, but it obviously provides a lot of context for, you know, those of us who are following kind of the Euro crisis and and the just continuing fiscal uh, debates within, you know, between European countries, essentially about stuff. And so the attitude towards, you know, the government using credit and the way that that should work and kind of how spending should work and social benefits and all that sort of stuff is, is, you know, at the core of when there are real vibrations in the EU, right? Like it's the Germans essentially saying, hey, we need to be more fiscally responsible and some other countries at least, you know, not agree, et cetera. So uh, a good thing the, the United States is not a part of the EU because just like American consumers, if the United States government started spending only the money that it actually had. I mean, my God, right? We'd have to sell an aircraft carrier or something. I don't know what would happen, Sam. Be insane. Okay. So that's a super interesting background, particularly in terms of loyalty uh, reward stuff, just because, you know, I mean, in the US anyway, as you know, at least some of this stuff is is really underpinned by by interchange and the widespread use of credit cards. And, you know, by no means is that is that the lifeblood of loyalty and rewards programs in the States, but it's at least a chunk of it. So so Talon one is doing loyalty programs for brands and retailers from what I, from what I recall and understand. Talk to me a little bit about basically what you do. And you've got this idea of a headless loyalty engine. I want to hear about that. The idea of, of software being headless isn't especially new. There, there are tons of headless vendors out there. That just means that you don't touch the front end, right? That you're validating without being especially opinionated or directly running exactly what the end user sees. Kind of this idea that that software vendors should do a, a short list of things that they're extremely good at, and not you know a couple of things they're good at and a ton of things they're 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 terrible at, right? Which is kind of how how most software companies built it in the early 2000s that are still around, they've kind of expanded to doing everything poorly instead of a couple of things really well. So, so for us, like the headless part is just to say that we really focus on the evaluation of loyalty program incentives as well as promotion. So, so we do about as much work in promotions as we do in, in true loyalty programs and, and more or less they're the, the same thing of just what kind of value can you give back to the user based on data. So really a data-driven engine to evaluate the benefits members get from loyalty programs. So for example, we have a easy to use rule builder for marketers where they can access any data from sources like the CRM or the CDP or the, the product information management or enterprise resource planning, any kind of infrastructure about the customer, the items, session, and then use that in a, in a rule builder to say, okay, if this is a customer who's been with us for more than a year, their lifetime value is over 500 bucks, but they haven't purchased in 90 days, then let's give them a 10% discount on an item in a category they bought from us before, you know, rather than just running generic discounts, like, okay, join this program and you get 2% cash back or something more focused on how do we use, use loyalty programs as a vehicle to deliver really personalized, engaging incentives built with whatever data, you know, we play nice with all the data sources in our customers' stacks. You see a lot of vendors too, that are kind of focused on, okay, like we're trying to build a Salesforce house within this brand or whatever. And, and we are more at home. We're, we work great with Salesforce, but are more at home with kind of, you know, working alongside other headless vendors that are really good at connecting via, via APIs is the, the heart of the technology. You're 
at, at the core, if I'm hearing you right, sort of insight and analytics is that is that, you know, understanding what's going on with the loyalty program and what the possibilities are. Is that have I got that right? Yeah, it's a big, big part of it. Most loyalty programs launch with a pretty canned set of incentives. So, you know, you'll have points and you'll have tiers. And then the idea is that, okay, the brand will continue to add new new benefits and kind of tweak that. But but what so often happens is that the program doesn't really evolve and it gets really boring and really stale. Maybe there's a co-brand, a credit card attached to, but overall it's just kind of, you know, hey, here's some some points back that you can spend on discounts. So for us, like, yes, there's a management and analytics side that we we support on, but it's more about, okay, how do we set the organization up with the technology and the organizational capabilities to actually iterate their incentives, figure out what's working, do more of that, do less of the stuff that's just wasting money on over broad discounts. So a bit more kind of iterative, personalized incentives that you can really measure what's working and try different things with any data that you have available in, in your infrastructure. Is there a kind of a market difference, whether it's culture or, or driven by other things in terms of what people want in rewards or how loyalty programs kind of tend to work over there? Yeah, definitely. The main thing, I mean, here in, in Germany, the market is actually dominated by a, a coalition program. It's called, called Payback. They have incredible reach, like 60% of households in Germany are a member of this coalition. They track like 6% of all transactions in the entire German economy go through this coalition program. So it's a huge market share in Germany, but then you know the German consumer is also different, even compared to neighbors in in Denmark or in France or in Poland. So there's a lot of variability in how consumers move here, and yet most retailers tend to operate across multiple markets too, right? So there's always kind of a, a localization challenge, and even the European Union as a you know more or less cohesive political body. A lot of their kind of landmark legislation is is up to the different member states and how exactly they enforce it. So we even have different privacy and and you know pricing regulations from, from market to market within the EU. So it's a it's it's definitely less of a unified market. I you know I'd hope as an American I'm allowed to say that consumers in Seattle and consumers in Miami are, are more likely to act similarly compared to you know consumers in Berlin versus Paris, right? So that's a huge, huge focus for us. I mean, in the U.S., you do see that loyalty is a bit more mature in that more of our U.S. customers had previously launched loyalty, and then they decide it's it's not really driving enough value, so they need to either kill it or enhance it. A really kind of common story is that, okay, you've, you've launched this loyalty program, haven't really iterated. The loyalty manager is still there, but the IT resources have moved, moved, moved away to other things. The CMO is focused on, I don't know, big picture brand stuff. So the loyalty program just kind of drips out discounts, usually offering like a two to five percent cash back. And at some point, you know, a CFO is going to start kicking the tires to that thing, right? And, and ask, do we really need to, to be to be incentivizing our most frequent customers with discounts, right? Because that can be incredibly damaging to margin and, and compound as well. So I'd say in the US, we're usually kind of refining or relaunching a loyalty program that's already existing in the market. Whereas in Germany, most of them had been a part of that coalition scheme I mentioned or, or a competitor of theirs. Interlaunching loyalty is, is something new. And then the UK, just as a totally different example, is really, really sophisticated in, in a loyalty front, largely because the supermarkets have really led there. You know, the cost of living crisis the last, last year especially has been you know, a huge enrollment driver for loyalty programs as well as something that's able to, to help people save a few pounds a month on, on their grocery spend as being a member of something like you know, Sainsbury's, Nectar or something like that in the UK. That's really interesting kind of take on the different the different markets. I mean, you've and you've you've said that 
you know, a lack of creativity, I guess. I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth now, but interesting new things, I guess, happening in the loyalty program has been part of the problem. As you've kind of teed it up, you've got a CFO that's saying, hey, this is this really worth it? I mean, it's it's a, almost a philosophical, like, problem. <laughs> like, how do you figure yeah. out, like, how, how would you ever know? But I wonder, I wonder, I guess, where have you seen that get resolved in a constructive way? Or what's the most coherent answer, I guess, to the, to the unanswerable question of, are these people our best customers because we re- reward them or are we rewarding right. them for something that they would be anyway. Yeah, I mean I mean loyalty programs absolutely can work. So so like, you know, my ideal scenario with my customers is where we get a full year of the customer before enrollment and a full year after enrollment because any business you're going to have seasonality, right? So to have that before and after where you can really kind of confidently say that this loyalty program has moved behavior it is going to take you know years of data collection and oftentimes Retailers don't really recognize users unless they've created an account. And oftentimes creating an account means enrolling in loyalty. So the the data picture is always going to be really, really difficult. Where where I tend to focus more of my time is thinking about the actual campaigns or the offers that you introduce as as a new part of a loyalty program and then measure, okay, does that individual campaign or activation in the loyalty program drive results? And then kind of think about your loyalty program more as a vehicle to market better to your known users and less so of like, a, you know, something that, okay, we've got 20% of our customers that drive 80% of our revenue and we're giving that 20% a discount on that 80% because that's that's always going to be be tough to tough to prove. Um, so definitely more campaign-driven attribution because true attri- attributability of do loyalty programs actually make people spend more is going to be difficult. But tons of kind of, you know, individual great case studies of that. One that I was just reading about the other day is that SAS, the Scandinavian airline, their, their loyalty program was was deemed such an advantage that it was it was unfair to their competition. So they were ordered to close it for like 12 years or something like that. And then they were finally able to reinstate it at some time in the 2010s and then were able to kind of see, okay, what does it actually do? They're, they're kind of the only major airline that didn't have a loyalty program, didn't have a miles program for a while. So it's kind of interesting uh, to see, you know, before and after what happened when they were able to, to reintroduce that in the market. But yeah, all, always a challenge and, and kind of better to think about it. Okay, loyalty is a data engine to actually use your customer data. And loyalty is is a, a marketing vehicle to, to be able to deliver more interesting, personalized, timely offers to, to your to your users. Yeah, terrific. It's super. It's interesting stuff. We could we could co-brand this episode with the uh, uh, the epistemology podcast. I've been just itching to launch, but I feel like you know I'm I'm going to be you know late to the epistemology podcast craze. Right? It'll be like everybody trying to launch a murder podcast after serial. Uh, okay. Yeah. No. It, it's interesting, and I I love that story. I think I, I think I only knew about that because it's something you mentioned on maybe LinkedIn um, related to the airline story and that kind of regulatory like natural experiment of hey, we are not allowed to have a a loyalty program. Uh, we could go, but we won't down the rabbit hole of how interesting it is with competition law in different areas of Europe. And it's not just airlines. It's a lot of different um, things because the, each individual market is just a little bit of a smaller bucket. And so it's not that hard to, you could almost accidentally dominate the Finnish market for something, right? If one of your competitors just, you know, uh, folds or, or closes, you know, whatever, uh, all of a sudden you're the only one there, right? And you got a problem. So it's, it's, it's a very different circumstance to what you see in the U.S. 
you know, I want to talk about data a little bit because what what you know, data is kind of the underlying lifeblood of of all this stuff at some level, and certainly it's the world that you're in. Um, we just had a really interesting roundtable, uh, DC roundtable last week in Chicago, to talk about sort of data, creative uses of data, evolution of you know different kinds of data, what's available, and the way that data sets are being brought together to try and generate more insight. And so, uh, wanted to get your sense, I guess, on this. And again, you've already mentioned sort of the the regulatory you know constraints. I just think of it as rules of the road. Right, because there's all kinds of reasons why organizations do or don't, you know, want to use certain kinds of data, and some of it's the law, but some some of it is other reasons, very other very good reasons too. And so, would love to get your sense of what you think is exciting about, you know, what's going to be possible um, in the next year or two in the in the data world, and sort of in connection with the loyalty and marketing work that you do, and then maybe, you know, what are some of the risks? Yeah, I think the, I mean, obviously the big the big headline here is that we're still in the middle of the incredibly slow belabored death of the the cookie right so so there's there's going to be less third party data available you know next year again with with, with google phasing out so they're going to take away 1% of their third party third party cookie data next year and then by the end all of it right so so we're seeing less and less third party data available and that's the kind of thing that I say on podcasts and webinars all the time. And I, I, I get the sense that not many people have really kind of gone down the, the, the food chain to, to understand what that really means for their business. It's kind of something that sits with advertisers in the business or demand generation marketers. But it is it is a really big threat of like how you're actually able to attract users pretty, pretty high up in your funnel. So I always really encourage people to, to just, okay, really, it's something worth auditing and understanding what is what is less third-party data available? What does that mean for your business? I was talking to our team about that because obviously we're, you know, we're, we're a business, but we do tons of marketing, especially on LinkedIn. And for us, it's just going to mean that we're, we're much more dependent on LinkedIn and Bing and kind of like the, the channels that we advertise in. Because we can't, you know, we can't reach that through through third-party tools. We need to actually go directly through the channels that we're operating in, and, and it looks really different for for every business. Ultimately, you know, third-party data evaporating means that the the other types of data, so zero and first-party, especially, are are going to be a lot more relevant. So, zero-party data is obviously the user that the data that the user voluntarily shares with you. First-party data is stuff that you collect from their their usage of the product. Both of those are, are, you know, as long as you've opted into the marketing, kosher to use. And loyalty programs are, are great at both of those. So if you think about zero-party data, first of all, so just being able to reward users for, for filling out a form or completing their preference center in first-party data, recognizing more of your users, so having a strong value proposition in the program can help you make sure that more of your sessions actually have signed-in users. So both in terms of collecting the first and zero party data, loyalty programs are, are really helpful. Um, and then obviously using it. So giving you a trusted marketing vehicle to then go back to the user and say, we're pretty confident this is something you'd be interested in. Here's, here's an offer on it or here's an, here's an email about it because you've been able to kind of collect and use that. You know, enterprises tend to have pretty interesting data somewhere in their stack. So a big focus of our work is just making sure that you know that plumbing is all connected and you're able to use that in promotions and loyalty incentives. So one one metric I pay a ton of attention to with our customers is just how many data sets our customers have available. So on average, they have 72 different data points. It could be something about the customers, you know, lifetime spend, uh, their discount sensitivity, any segments, loyalty sign-up date, as well as anything about the the item in the session. Really, really anything, but a big focus for us is, okay, we just want to make sure the marketer has 
trusted, you know, legitimate data available to run promotions and loyalty rules on. It's a lot of times just kind of sitting in a, you know, a data lake or something and, and not something that can really be really be used in a marketing, marketing, you know, sense. And obviously, you know, acquisition costs remain pretty high. Third-party data is, you know, evaporating as we speak. So you actually really need to use that zero and first-party data that maybe you've already collected, but just isn't really being used beyond a couple segmented emails you send out every year or something like that. One of the, just to echo a couple of things you've said, I think coming out of the roundtable last week, I certainly the messiness of data and the, uh, you know, it's, it's basically everyone else's house is as messy as yours, right? Like everybody's like, oh man, our guest room is a disaster, right? And it's like, oh, but I bet everybody else's, it's like, no, everybody's guest room is a disaster, right? Plus some other rooms too. And so I think from a data, you know, the data thing, it's still true in the same way, right? So companies just kind of talking and realizing that, you know, you've got a ton of it, you got a haystack, not necessarily well organized. This is, I think, your comment about data lakes, and it's just not like a pile of stuff. And you know, are we making good use of it, and and that kind of thing? So that's that's one point. The the other is your comment about you know an, an upstream audit of hey, we don't f- think of ourselves as being reliant on third party data or you know stuff that emanates from third party cookies or whatever. But yeah, you get the sense I think that folks are you know everybody's moving pretty fast and their data world is messy and all that. They may not know. I think yeah. in a lot of cases, like what what their yeah. level of dependence is on this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I always I mean I always really recommend you know find for for leaders anyways find somebody in your organization who's like you know doing your top of the funnel marketing and just sit down with them and understand okay where where is third party data coming in because even if it's not something that's like you know part of your top top line marketing strategy. If you have like a Facebook ads manager who's who's measured based on their clicks and the residents, the advertisements they're running, you know, it's very likely that they're they're using all the tools that have been at their disposal and, and tools that might not be at their disposal next year, right? So it's definitely worth getting in there. And the other thing is like, you know, I think that, you know, generally I I spend most of my time talking to director, VP level, you know, you know, leaders, but then Usually when you talk to the more operational folks, they have really cool ideas of like types of offers they'd want to run or things that they think would be meaningful to their to their members. But, you know, they just don't have the data set up to, to make that happen. So always good to just kind of make sure you're, you know, providing a sounding board just to hear from more operational folks of of what they think might be interesting in terms of using the data that you already have, you know, have on hand in, in somewhere in the organization. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. One of the things that also was I was reminded of in the conversation last week on data is that, as I said to the group as we were, we were talking, to a greater extent than in other areas, uh, I think where you sit is where you stand uh, is a kind of an old, more like a political saying, but it's, you know, the idea is the position that you occupy in the marketplace will have a huge influence on, you know, your your point of view and, and what you're willing to do. And what I see is that different kinds of organizations, different companies are willing to be more innovative, more risk-taking, or less so, you know, depending on kind of the, the where they are in the supply chain. I wonder where you see, from your vantage point, 
organizations that are, you know, willing to be, to innovate, willing to try some stuff versus ones. Cause I'm sure that you know, you deal with some customers, some folks that are, are working with you that are behave very differently or that have, have more willingness to try new stuff and others that are like, Hey, let's just be careful. Why do you, you know, and I, I don't know, obviously we're not talking customer names, but it's like, wh- when do you see instances where, where people are willing to innovate and what seems to drive that? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I got to tell you, it's it's slow going here in 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 Germany. I think that one of the reasons why, you know, Germany has this like this this unearned reputation of being incredibly efficient. Which which if you've lived here for you know longer than a couple months, you, you realize how laughably untrue that is. But it's really that Germans are incredibly thoughtful about how changes integrate into the broader system. So they tend to be more systems thinkers. So I, I think that that can. That that's a frequent challenge that I, I come up with, with with our German customers is they're so thoughtful about how exactly things will integrate into their broader organization, which is you know it, it's a good thing, but but yeah, the dosage makes the poison or whatever. Whereas Americans, you know, like we love to pitch and, and listen listen to shiny new things, right? So I think there's there, there's definitely an organizational and you know the actual cultural element of that. And I, I struggle to with you know work with a lot of organizations where they do kind of like innovation as a as a thin veneer over the rest of their work and you know kind of like a more of a lab driven approach of okay we've got something where hey we're testing NFTs and Web three stuff in a little program but it's only it's a separate thing to the rest of our business like the Starbucks Odyssey thing which is a, a Web three driven loyalty program that's totally separate from the rest of their loyalty work right. And that can be good, but at a certain size, it's it's so hard to like to to build that into like all of your work. So I'm, I'm sensitive that enterprises need to kind of try things as more of like a, okay, this is a shiny experiment off to the side of the actual house that we built. Generally, like I, I see a lot of our work is somewhat like digital transformation as a as a buzzy word, but there's actually really really good methodologies in the digital transformation world that I that I like in terms of taking really practical approaches to bringing more data into the enterprise, experimenting in a, in a consistent way. There's a great McKinsey book from, from the beginning of this year called Rewired, which is all about running your business given the AI and data challenges that are that are coming. It, and it has really, really good stuff about, okay, how do you think about the different the different domains that are required to, to achieve more visionary goals and tons of kind of best practice about how different organizations are wired? So, so you know, Lego is a customer of ours, for example, and Lego is a really innovative technology group. I mean, you know, they sell chunks of plastic. So it's like, okay, why do they need to be such an innovative technologist? For them, it's really organizational design of how you set up the different pods to work on different challenges in the business. And they have a great case study in that rewired McKinsey book as well that I think is, is really worth reading. The history of Lego, there's been, there's been a certain amount written about Lego's kind of economic history, right? And this is a company that almost collapsed and, and went bankrupt at one point, in, in a sense, almost when they were, when it felt like they were at their most innovative or their most successful, but they weren't. And uh, at least like fiscally, financially, they weren't doing that well. And then, you know, on the other hand, I, I'll never forget walking into the Lego movie many, many years ago because my kids were little and I was taking them and thinking to myself, gosh, this is, this is 90 minutes, I'll never get back. And then just being, you know, just, I mean, I actually literally while I was sitting there, you know, it, you, I used my BlackBerry to email the head of strategy at Lego um, and somebody at Warner Brothers at the same time and just be like, guys, this is this is this is so, so far exceeding my expectations. And it's not that the movie is the, the story of Lego, but it really is is interesting to think about. That's an aside, I have to say, but Lego I find yeah. fascinating. So you know, the, other, and the other thing I have to just say as an aside, and then I want to go to kind of your your personal loyalty um, rewards kind of experiences, because I know you've had some interesting stuff there. Um, but no, on the innovation thing and on the way that different cultures sort of approach it, I mean, I have learned over the course of 
uh, I don't know, 30 some years, that if you wanted to stereotype the American way of innovation as being Silicon Valley style innovation, and that's really a more recent development, right? It doesn't accurately capture what was happening mid and late 20th century. But if we think of that as a certain kind of innovation, we've become very oriented towards that, which is basically just throw a bunch of stuff up against the wall, see what sticks, right? As certain methodologies for thinking through things, but very much a sort of fail fast approach. That works in some industries and not others. And it, it famously doesn't work in industries that involve a lot of fixed hard capital like auto manufacturing. And so, you know, tossing around ideas like, hey, let's, you know, I mean, all basically all those um, sort of maxims about innovation don't really work terrifically well um, when you're in the world of some, some of those other industries. You got to be specific about like what what sector are we in? Uh, and so, you know, the, the fact is. It's kind of like the culture, I think the culture will uh, tend to drive the way you think about innovation and, and frankly, the way that you think about the organization. And that's going to, to some extent, result in the kinds of businesses that succeed in that context, right? So, you know, the manufacturing core of German economy from the middle up to the top with Mercedes and all that, you know, are pretty well suited to the culture you describe. But there's going to be some other stuff that's really hard to build if that's the pervasive culture, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's some, so many times where I really miss the U.S.'s kind of, you know, just a willingness to kind of just just to try and talk through things compared to compared to Germany. Mm-hmm. I think that the U.S. is, you know, like in Berlin, especially like customer service here is it's just not not in the culture to be nice to somebody who's spending money at your business. Mm-hmm. So so I feel that rub a lot of like that customer centricity is harder to, to build in a business here. And, and I, you know, I regularly see the, the benefits. It's such a cliche, but like where of, of businesses that have really built their businesses around customer centricity, how much better they are at what they do. We run the Lotus program of a, and this is, this is really flashy, a business to business landscape supply company in the United nice. States, but, and they yeah. have a loyalty program and it's, and it's amazing. Like it's, it's such an emotional value proposition for what landscaping businesses want. I mean, it's like marketing toolkits to better promote their business it's free vacations for for landscapers who you know who are very slow to like invest in themselves because they're you know probably probably nine months a year depending on where they are they're just absolutely you know out there like working every day it's stuff that's like really gotten in the head of, of what their members want it, you know they have like tax compliance or tax software discounts they have office depot you know giveaway stuff it's it's just really thoughtful of like okay what's the surrounding lifestyle of their customer in this case a independent landscaper. Um, and how do we how do we serve that in a loyalty context? And and that's really powerful and something that German brands are are slower to do. And and German consumers also like are are scared of personalization. Part of that's that the consumer here is like is a good deal older, so you, you see some kind of some generational stuff. But but generally, like there's a deep distrust of of brands actually doing personalization. So there's less consumer interest, but but I still think there's a lot more that can be done here in Europe you know, kind of more in the the American style of yeah, really telling like a compelling emotional story. I think about like Levi's all the time, like their tagline is the greatest story ever worn. Just mm. such a great slogan. <laughs> and and like that kind of thing would just never work for a German brand because it's such it's such fluff. But I just I love it. Like I think it's really emotionally compelling branding. And yeah, you just less likely to see that from a, a German brand. They're more likely to, I don't know, talk about how many stitches are in their jeans or something like that. Oh yeah, that's super interesting. Well, and it get, it gets actually to one one of the things that again, this is back to the kind of unknowables. But you know, at what point do people become? there's a concern about, hey, we want to personalize, but at what point are people going to think it's creepy or think it's too much or whatever? And that's just a, you know, it's hard to assess. But, you know, casually, one thing you could say is, well, 
And this isn't quite the same thing, but directionally, you might just say, I don't know, TikTok is wildly successful, uh, especially with younger users, in, in, at least in the United States. And, you know, I, they're, I think everybody at this point is aware of the amount of information that's sort of bleeding in and how much sort of tailoring is taking place. And they don't seem to be bothered, like, you know, and it's and the yeah. proof's in the pudding, right? But that's not quite the same as like, the kind of the kind of tailoring that's taking place there might not feel the same to people. Um, so I don't know, is, is TikTok popular in your, Germany, as far as you can tell? Yeah, it is. And I think that the businesses where the whole idea is like a more personalized experience still do pretty, pretty well here. I mean, like Amazon Prime is like widely used. And there's the great Jeff Bezos quote about like, if we have 27 million customers, I don't want to be a shop with 27 million customers. I want to have 27 million different businesses or whatever, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. So, so those kinds of things, like, I mean, that still works here. It's just kind of if you're more of like a classic you know, brick and mortar retailer that, you know, unfortunately found yourself having to sell on the internet 15 years ago. It's just kind of a different cultural mindset towards that. Okay. Well, one last thing I have to throw in before we get to uh, your, your, your uh, rewards uh, preferences. And, but you mentioned B2B landscaping. I just can't, I just can't resist, but say that just makes me think of, of swan rental. I'm sure I've talked about swan rental before on um, commerce code, but you can rent swans. Does anybody rent swans in Germany? As far as you know, Rent renting swans, like renting a living bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, so in the Chicago suburbs, at least, if not maybe other places. So what you have is these businesses that will rent. Okay, so you got all these corporate headquarters, right? It, imagine the Chicago suburbs, probably suburbs of any other American city, and they've got like fake lakes or like little ponds or whatever. Yeah. There's water features. Okay, so you get these water features. They attract just these. Canada geese, they're foreigners and they poop everywhere, right? And so it's a problem, right? And so anyway, turns out that Canada geese will not hang out where there is a big, white, gigantic swan because swans, I guess, are wild, beautiful and slow and elegant and all that stuff. I guess they're just like violent and territorial and whatever. So the Canada geese are like, no, we will find another place. So there's a business in in the Chicago suburbs you can just rent a swan because the thing is they're not going to stay there over the winter, right? Like, I guess. And so they take them back and they keep them happy or whatever. And then they'll deliver them to your corporate headquarters and they'll live there for, I guess, the summer. I don't know if they feed them. I mean, I don't know. All I know is you could rent a swan, which I think is quite a business. Yeah, that is. That is. Yeah. I don't know what the loyalty program would look like there, but there's definitely a, yeah, it's an emotional product for sure. Yeah, like it, it could be a two for, okay, right. That's now I'm getting silly. Um, so what's the brand or experience that you've kind of run into over there? So you've talked about the customer service culture, all this stuff, but I know too, that there's some super cool stuff going on. Obviously there is in any culture. Talk to me about what you like. I don't know. As a consumer, I've, I've, I always waffle on like, if I like how transactional retail and, and e-commerce are here, that, that it is kind of more of like, you know, German consumers, want to have all the all the information rationally presented to them so that they can make you know a rational buying decision. So I always kind of wrestle like, okay, do I like that or not? But but I think that's kind of like that that is the the e-commerce experience where like, you know, you do kind of get presented with a lot of information and you kind of have a, you know, a pretty clear vision of like how the product will will work or whatever. So it's mixed. I mean, I would say that you don't see much like in-store retail innovation in Germany. I love going, I go back to the U.S. at least once a year, usually once for work and once for personal travel and just try and go in to as many stores as I, as I can. And I'm always like blown away by how quickly the landscape there moves. Like if you think about the square card reader system, that like how much they're able to share data between merchants so that merchants, like when you go to a new coffee shop and use your credit card, they recognize you by name and have your email and phone number and make it really easy to opt in stuff here. Right. So like, 
that never happens here, which also means that businesses never send you marketing that you didn't really mean to sign up for here. So at least there's inbox clarity that I get out of there. But Berlin's a very boutique city. So the actual like brick and mortar shopping here is is quite fun. It's just not like technologically enabled yet. So a lot of cash payments, a lot of, I don't know, just really clunky kind of technical technological experiences. It's a hipster city too, right? So you get some, some kind of interesting stuff as a result of that. There's a, a really craft small drink shop that I think about here a lot. I, I stopped drinking alcohol for a bit back in April. I've really kind of gone deep into the non-alcoholic beverage world. So basically, I'm going to this really fancy boutique store and I'm buying $15 bottles of sparkling juice. That's a ridiculous thing to do. I mean, that's a pretty unjustifiable purchase, but it's it's a really like nice kind of retail experience. And they're not preachy about you know not drinking or, or whatever. Just proud of of really interesting kind of craft products in a category that I, you know, when I was drinking alcohol, I never would have paid any attention to. So I enjoy enjoy that kind of thing. The, the brand that I'm always most excited about is actually Red Wing Shoes. It's partially a Minnesota pride thing, but they have an amazing shop here. And I think that Red Wing kind of exports their coolest stuff to, to foreign markets like Germany and Japan. So I love kind of championing American heritage brands. So I, I'm an American shopper at heart. It rubs me a lot to be to be living here and kind of missing the, the higher polish retail experiences you get back in the U.S., but my inbox is definitely happier for the the lack of unsolicited marketing stuff I I don't get while living here. It is interesting. I didn't I'd never thought about Red Wing shoes in particular, but you know, it's interesting when you'll see American brands that are and I don't know how they're positioned in the European market, but that are that we wouldn't think of a lot necessarily, right? But that have a, a certain presence or a certain almost elevated presence in in other countries, right? If you look at men's clothing, just you know casually like Van Heusen, they'll be presented as a sort of a higher end brand yeah. in Europe, that kind of stuff. Levi's obviously has different positioning around the world, actually, in terms of where they are in the yeah. market. But oftentimes it's it's a little higher in the marketplace perception than it would be in in the U.S. And this is really interesting. This is a super interesting conversation, Sam. And I um, I got to say, until you mentioned the not drinking alcohol since April, I was thinking, well, maybe Sam will move home, but it's actually not, you're not allowed to move back to Wisconsin if that's a commitment that you've made. Like, that's just not tenable, Uh, might not even be legal, Uh, but maybe a neighboring state, you know, could take you in. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think they make you they make you drink a spot of whenever you cross the border these days. So that's just the, that's just the way, the way, the way of things. Yeah. Well, border control getting into Wisconsin, sometimes it can be complicated. So yeah. Great. Well, look, thank you for your your time, your insights. Super interesting to unpack this. And this is, I think, you know, at least in my, uh, whatever, 100 episodes of Commerce Code, the first time that I've gone deep on kind of the continent and some of the stuff about it. And it is fascinating how this works. I was struck when I was in London this March, and I'll be back again before too long at how like cash is just not used. And I know enough, you know, been around the block enough not to extrapolate from experiences one European country to think that it's a similar in another. But your your comment about cash still being so dominant in Germany is a stark contrast to what was going on in the UK and I think in some other continental countries too. Yeah. Yeah. The UK is really much more, much more sophisticated there too. Love going back there. It's kind of a hybrid thing between the continent and, and the US. I'm sure, I'm sure there's probably a more artful way to describe them than that when we're talking to the British, but I, I hear you on how it, because it, it works out that way, essentially, right? It feels that way to some extent to Americans. Well, one thing I, I wanted to make sure I hit on too, because I think if, if any of your listeners are, are American brands trading in Europe, there is some kind of, you know, some, some stuff that we focus on of how do you, how do you manage that? One thing that I, I just think isn't on enough radar right now is just that there is some new regulation or how how you can position discounts here in Europe. So even if you're an American brand, regardless of where you're domiciled or where your operations are, there's new rules in place that are pretty strict around how you show reductions in price. So discounts, it's a price indication directive. It's it's a really boring thing, but just one one thing I wanted to make sure to to mention on the podcast because you know if you've got American 
companies that are doing any business in, in Europe, there's there's some new regulatory stuff in play that is just starting to be enforced. It's just like GDPR in terms of the fine structure. So 4% of revenue, pretty big one. So, so yeah, as we talk about kind of doing business internationally or, or the difference between the US and, and Europe, a lot of U.S. brands just ship into Europe, but if you're doing that, there's some there's some new stuff in play in addition to all the GDPR stuff that we've had in place since 2018 or whatever. And that one highlights, I think, a significant cultural difference, I guess, or at least a marketplace difference, which is uh, not getting into details too much. But basically, if American brands continue to do some of the pricing presentation the way that they normally do, it'd be a little bit like the relationship between Americans' use of credit cards and, and Europeans. Like, it's just like a lot of the stuff that we do is just straight up not allowed at this point. Yeah. And I think the essence of it is that if you're if you're characterizing something as a discount, it actually has to be legitimately yeah, cheaper exactly. than right than what people are in fact paying another so for example the not you know there are um, entire chains right in the United States like major retailers that are predicated yeah. entirely on printing receipts that say hey you know marked down from 40 and basically everybody knows that was never yeah. 40 nobody pays 40 yeah, exactly. and it's whatever exactly. and so that's essentially what you're not allowed to do right yeah exactly and i know like the ftc wags its finger at that in the us but hasn't it, like it's it's one of their listed dark dark patterns that they complain about but you know the, the process to actually start enforcing or building policy around dark patterns is 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 slow and you're, you're just starting to see the first of it with subscription opt-in with amazon but nothing really around the price price uh discounting communication just yet maybe someday Maybe someday. We'll see. It's actually, uh, well, complicated enough that it involves a, a whole other podcast. Maybe that's in the epistemology yeah, series. Right, it's it's, it's right. deep. Okay. Sam, thanks so much. Have a great rest of the day. And uh, thanks for joining us on Commerce Code. Thanks, Dan. R- really fun to chat. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.